0: We've got, in our country today, two men that are preachers that are running for president of the United States. We also have a situation where one man who was running for president stepped down for a while before getting in the race because of uh, sin in his personal life. We also have had a year where a couple of well-known evangelists, two of the most publicized Uh, on TV uh, had sin come up that was in their life that was of such a nature that at least it caused them to step down uh, from their place for a period of time. As a result of the preachers in the race and what has happened in TV evangelism, there has been a lot of attention in the newspaper and in magazine articles to this thing called sin. And it's debated in various ways Uh, There's confusion there in several directions so far as society is concerned. On the one hand, for example, as the person in society looks at this, you have individuals getting very disturbed because it's so-and-so, the TV evangelist or the man running for president, did something, and everybody says that's sin and that's terrible. But then the people who did those things that seem so terrible and it's called sin uh, they point the finger right back, and they say, well, everybody is a sinner. Uh, I was listening to the man that uh, stepped out of the presidential race for a while before getting back in, and when they challenged him concerning the sin in his life, he said, let those without sin cast the first stone. And he was quoting from Jesus on that point. Uh, when some wanted to stone, a woman committed caught in the very act of adultery itself, The question that Jesus threw at them was, let him without sin cast the first stone. So sin is something that it seems that uh, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you're a Jew, you're a Muslim, you're just simply alive, you have some awareness of it. There's some agreement among us that there are certain things that are considered wrong. We may not agree on all of these things, but we know that there are certain things that generally that we agree on as being wrong and that these things are called sin, we also agree on the fact that we all do these things that are called wrong, that there's nobody without sin. There's nobody that lives that perfect life. And yet on the other hand, there are those individuals that uh, we wind up pointing the finger at and say, hey, he cannot hold this position or he needs to step down uh, because of sin. Well, With all this talk on that, I thought it might be interesting to deviate just a little bit from our study we've been going through Paul's letters and look at sin as a subject as it is portrayed in the bible first of all when we define our terms if you were to read the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament we know of course that our English translation was translated from the Hebrew and from the Greek you would find that there are several different Hebrew words and several different Greek words that are rendered in our English translation with this one word, sin. Now, even though that is the case, they have a root similarity. There is a root meaning in all of these various variations of this word that's translated sin. And that root meaning is miss the mark. In other words, the literal root of this word that we translate as sin from the Hebrew and also from the Greek The one statement they would all have in common, there would be variations of this, but would be miss the mark. Another thing that would be held in common in both the Old and the New Testament, and that is what the mark is. There's no question to anybody's mind, no matter what religious group they're a part of, who is familiar at all with the Old and New Testament scriptures, that the mark that is set forth as being perfect is God's law. God's law is set forth as being absolutely perfect, and any deviation of that law is called miss the mark. In other words, sin is, is uh, maybe a little different, I think, than we sometimes conjure in our mind, if we can think of it as it's portrayed in the Bible, that God's mark is his law. Uh, for, and, and to think very simply of the law, when Jesus summed up the law, he simply said, number one, love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, and number two, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Another time he said, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In Matthew 7 and verse 12. So Jesus said the, all of the principles of the law could be summed up in the teaching on love. Uh, that if you love somebody, then you don't need all those thou shalt nots. You just simply do not murder people you love. You don't steal from people you love. You don't lie about people you love. You don't commit adultery with a man's wife if you love the man, or if you love her, or if you love your wife, or if you love God. And so love, he said, is, is the goal. The Christian gets a better example of what the mark is than the Jew. The Jew just simply had the law stated in a very legalistic way. But then Jesus comes on the scene of the New Testament, and for the first time in the history of the human race, we see an individual in the flesh perfectly live in keeping with God's law. And we see what happens. To look at the life of Jesus is to look at a life of an individual, the only individual that ever lived, that perfectly kept God's law. The only individual that perfectly loved God with all his heart, mind, and soul. The only individual that perfectly loved his neighbor as himself and so he becomes the go, and and therefore in the new testament when we speak of this mark that to deviate from his sin we constantly have the life of jesus portrayed before us and paul would make such statements as follow me as i follow christ imitate me as i imitate christ peter and paul would each make the statements that have this mind in you which was first in christ jesus and so jesus was perfect because he did perfectly keep the law now Let's look at something else on this thing of sin and missing the mark in God's law. God's law, and I think this is important to keep in our mind, and I think sometimes we don't do the job that we should in teaching our young people about this. I think that many times our youth, I know how I felt when I was a youth, they think of law as just a lot of negatives and thou shalt nots, and somehow it takes away from the front in life. But in reality, God's law is put forth as something that is for the good of those to which it's intended. In other words, the thou shalt nots in God's law are not there to take the fun out of life. They're to keep you from destroying yourself. They're given in the same vein that a parent tells a child, don't play in the street. Thou shalt not play in the street. What are you trying to do? Rob that child of some fun? keeping him from all the action well you're trying to save that child to save you're trying to save his life or if you tell the child that don't eat this don't put this in your mouth don't chew on your pencils well now you understand that that paint may have lead in it now I understand now the paint does not have lead in it but at one time it did And so when a parent told the child not to chew on the pencil, the the child didn't understand about lead. He didn't understand about absorbing something into his bloodstream and what it could do to his mind. But the parent knew that that paint might have a lead content. And so he said, don't chew on pencils. Don't chew on anything that's been painted. So again, the child didn't fully understand, but the purpose of the command, the purpose of the thou shalt not, is to actually save the life of that child. And so it is that parents have a lot of thou shalt nots for their children, and they've got some thou shalt, and the purpose is because they love their children. And we recognize that good parents, and I'm not talking about anything except a good parent here, a good parent has thou shalt nots and thou shalt, not because he wants to rob his children of fun, but because he loves them. In the same vein, God's law comes forth, not as some negative things to take all the fun out of life, but it's from a loving Heavenly Father that has made us in His image. And just as the architect and the designer of a car knows how it functions best, I put a certain type of gas in my vehicle, not because I perfectly understand how that engine works and why it needs it. No, I'm not a mechanic. I'm not mechanically inclined, and I could not explain to you all the particulars as to why I put a certain type of gas in my vehicle. I put it in there because the the engineer who designed the engine and the company who sold it to me, it's behind the product, said, this is what will work. Don't use anything else. And so I'm not going to put water in there. I'm not going to pour alcohol in there. I'm not going to pour sand in there. I'm not putting sugar in there or anything else. I'm putting that in there. Now, for me to do anything else in the eyes of that company would be to sin to miss the mark. And if I do anything else and have a problem, I may as well not go to them because they're going to tell me I didn't follow the directions. They they claim that that vehicle will only operate if I put a certain type of fuel in it. And so I recognize that they're not trying to rob me of my freedom in telling me to put lead-free gas in my car. They're not trying to rob me of the freedom that I might have to pour water in there or something else. They're trying to tell me how to keep my vehicle running and running it top speed and so God gives his law to us in the same vein that the car company gives directions to you about that vehicle God made you you're made in his image your sexuality is ordained by God male and female were created by God sex is ordained by God nothing's wrong with sex just like nothing's wrong with water and sand and alcohol it's just that that engine's made to operate in a certain way So sex is ordained of God. The ability to get angry is ordained by God. You you wouldn't even have the capacity to get angry if God hadn't made you with that that capacity. And so we are made by God. God knows us. He understands us. God knows what is right and what is wrong. And so God's laws are given in the vein that you're made in a certain way. You're made in the image of God and you will function at your best by operating under certain principles. Now, God not only gave his law, but we have several thousands of years of history before Jesus comes to this earth. Now, how many thousands people will debate? I don't care myself whether it's 4,000 or 10,000 or however however many there is. And And the information is such that I don't believe anybody can be dogmatic there. So how long we've been here, I don't know. But we know we've been here at least thousands of years in the human state that we find ourselves. And it's interesting the way that God revealed his law. He gave it, and then he recorded the history. Had certain men, we refer to them as prophets, record the history of humanity from the beginning up to the time of the nation of Israel and up to a certain point before Christ, before he would pick up again in the days of Jesus. And what we have is a record of humanity Nations, communities, and individuals and families as they live. And when we read this record, we can see something. When people live by certain principles, certain things happen in their lives, in their community, in their countries. When they deviate from those principles, certain things happen. And so that's portrayed. Consequently, we find continually through the Bible People going one way, and then doing something that the Bible calls repenting. Repenting is not a mystical term. Repenting just simply means to change your mind. God has given us free choice. It's God's desire that after exercising our free choice, that when we exercise our choice and do wrong, that the natural consequence of that wrongdoing will cause us to change our mind. That's all repentance is. It's not some mystical experience it's just simply a human mind that has said this way is wrong this way is right i want to change and do it that way that's repentance it's that simple and so we have people constantly going one way here's god's law and they head off this way thinking that god's law has robbed them of some fun suffer some consequences and say hey this, this was right so they turn and come back to it and then we find god doing something called forgiveness in that when people come to the decision that they've done wrong and want to come back to his law and ask God to forgive them, God's willing to completely forgive them. Forget about the mistakes. Let them start open, brand new. And thus we work out something called the scheme of redemption or the need for salvation of mankind. God's law is perfect, but man has free choice and there's something in every one of us that we just simply have to make mistakes before we come to the realization that God's law is inherently right, it's right in and of itself, and we want to go in that direction. Now, I want to notice a few principles about this thing of sin, though, that will help us to understand not only just what it is, but when we are fully accountable to it, what is the difference between this individual that they say, hey, you need to get out of the race, you're not fit to be president, And he's pointing back and saying, hey, you're a sinner too. Why can't I be in the race? Or the evangelist is pointing back and saying, sure, I did such and such and such and such, but you're sinners too. Why can't I preach? What is the difference there? Or is there any difference? In Deuteronomy, the first chapter, there's one of the first statements there concerning man and his, his relationship to God and God's law and also accountability and when he becomes accountable that helps us, I think, on the road to understanding some of this. In Deuteronomy 1, and beginning with verse 29, God is talking to the, the Jewish nation, the Israelite people. They have come out of Egypt, and they have seen all those miracles that God performed in Egypt and the deliverance of them in a miraculous way, and they've come to the land of Canaan, and God has given them the commands to go in and take the land of Canaan. God's doing two things. He wants to use the land of Canaan, Palestine, to use the Jewish people to prepare the world for Christ. But he's also going to do something else. The people that are in the land have so totally abandoned the law of God that God had said that that the land would vomit them out. They were just simply totally corrupt, and they were wearing their children that way. There was no righteousness there, and so God had made the decision to use the Israelite nation to judge the people that were there and then to use that land to take the Jews, develop them into a nation and from that nation he would prepare the world for the Messiah to come. But in going in to take the land something happened. He sent 12 people in to look over the land and when they got in there, 10 of them were scared to death all the miracles that they had seen, all that God had done in delivering them. And they simply looked at the size of the land itself and the armies and the size of the people, and they come back and they told the other people, said, don't let Moses lead you in there. You'll only go to your death. These people are big and numerous. Two men, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, I don't care how big they are or how numerous they are. If God is with us, we can take the land. Then there were a lot of children there, the children of these very unbelievers that were involved in this situation too. So I want to notice God's attitude towards the two, towards the rest, and then towards the children of the rest. Then I said to you, do not be terrified, do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and all the desert where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give them, except Caleb, he will see it because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Then he goes on to say, Joshua, he will see it because he followed God. Then notice in verse 39, And the little ones, that's your children, that you said would be taken captive, your children, who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. All right, notice we learn several things there. Number one, we learn about individual accountability and freedom of choice. God didn't do anything mystical to make it easy for one person to obey him and difficult for another one. Joshua and Caleb were just like the rest, but they made the decision in their mind to trust in God and to submit to him. The others had seen everything that Joshua and Caleb had seen, and they made the decision in their mind not to trust in God and not to submit to him. God held them all accountable. He says, Joshua and Caleb, you will go in, the others will not. But then these others that sinned and rejected God had children, young children. And he looked at them and he said, your children who do not know right from wrong, they will enter in. We see something here. A person reaches a certain stage in life before he becomes accountable to God on the decisions he makes. You know there's a difference between believing something is right and wrong simply because mom or dad said it's right or wrong. There's a difference between that. And in believing it's right and wrong because you have reached a certain level of maturity yourself where you have said, I believe it's right and I believe it's wrong. Mom and dad, I may or may not agree with them. And so when this individual reaches that age where he has a level of maturity where he can see through experience what is right and what is wrong, at that point, he becomes accountable to God. Up to that point, even though he may be involved in wrong things under the influence of his parents, he's not accountable to God. And so we notice something here. Individual accountability, freedom of choice, but we see something else. When we come on the scene, God knows we come on, on a blank, as a blank sheet. He knows that we have no control over our parents or the environment that we're born into. And so, God does not hold a person accountable until he reaches this certain level of maturity where he has developed the ability, based on his own reason, his conscience, what he is come in contact with, to say, hey, this is right, and that is wrong. At that point, he becomes accountable before God, and so the children of that ungodly and corrupt generation would not suffer the same penalty as their fathers. God said they were not accountable, they would go in. So we learn something about sin now. We see something of the mercy, the compassion, and the understanding of God. He has his law, and it's perfect. But God also knows that we come on the scene as little babies and that we grow up, and he doesn't hold you accountable for the mistakes and the false teaching of your parents. And when you reach an age where you have the ability to reason and to look at this at that point, and I'm not specifying any age, That's between I'm going to let God and the individual conscience take care of that kind of thing. We can approximate, and I can show examples in the Bible to show you where that age might be. But I personally would not want to be so dogmatic as to specify a particular age there. That we know that there are children God could have given an age if he wanted to, he didn't. And then there's a certain level of maturity where a person becomes responsible for right and wrong, then they become or stand either condemned or excused on their own merits. Now turn with me over to another passage in the Bible. Over to Isaiah or Ezekiel I should say, Ezekiel the 18th chapter. Let's learn something else concerning sin. Now this is important because we we have acknowledged that God understands our environment. And God knows that we have to reach a certain level of understanding before we can be accountable before him. But here's something very interesting. Once we reach that certain level of maturity, we become responsible for sin before God no matter what our parents, whether they be good or bad. And that's interesting to me. That according to what Ezekiel says here, we reach a certain level and then no matter what our environment, our parents, we become responsible for certain things before God. In verse 18, chapter 18 of Ezekiel, he said, the word of the Lord came to me. What, you people, what do you people mean by quoting the proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, they were saying, the fathers made a mistake and we're suffering the consequence. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For every living soul belongs to me, the father as well as the son, both are alike. The soul that sins is the one who will die. Suppose there's a righteous man who does what is just. He says, well, he will live, verse 9. That man is righteous, he will live, declares the sovereign Lord. But suppose this righteous man has a violent son. Suppose he has a violent son, in verse 10, and it names all the ungodly things that he does. Will such a man live? He will not because he's done all these detestable things. So it says, here's a man that's righteous, he's going to live. He's got a son that turns out to be unrighteous. Will he live? No, he'll die. But, in verse 14, suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins of his father commits. All the sins his father commits, the son sees it. And though he sees them, he does not do such things. He goes on to say in the latter part of verse 17 he will not die for his father's sin he will surely live what has he said so far we and I you and I individually are uniquely made in the image of God and I don't care what our environment we have certain powers of perception and understanding so much so that in Romans 2 14 through 16 Paul even made the statement that the Gentile who did not have the law Of his own nature, he often figured out the things of the law himself and his own conscience would either excuse him or condemn him before God. In other words, we're made an image of God. We're very intelligent. And Paul said that we have the ability to observe life, to experience life, and to say that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Certain things work and certain things don't. And we become accountable for that because, see, our conscience... Anytime that we and our intellect perceive something as being wrong, if we go ahead and do it anyway, our conscience condemns us. And Paul said we're going to give an account of our conscience before God. In Ezekiel, he pictures a situation where you actually have an unrighteous daddy who's doing the wrong things, but he has a son. Now this son, up to a certain age, is not accountable before God. He does not know right from wrong, Moses said in Deuteronomy 1. But then he reaches a point where he begins to reason and understand for himself. Right and wrong is not just what mom or daddy says. He's looking, for, he's looking and he's thinking for himself. And so even though his environment is terrible, his dad's a stinker. He looks at his dad and he says, hey, that is wrong. And that is wrong. And I don't want to live that way. And I don't want those consequences. And so he makes the decision to do what's right. He said, that man will live no matter what a culprit that his dad may have been. But notice what he pictures there. You and I have the God-given intellectual ability, no matter what our environment, to look and perceive that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, and we become accountable for that. Now I think this is so important to our society and has been for some years. And I think some of the problem with sin is, is in this direction. We have been brought up under the influence of such men as Sigmund Freud. In fact, in going back for all the way to his time, there has been no individual more influential on the thinking of mankind pertaining to right and wrong than Sigmund Freud. From what I've read, 80% of all psychiatry has been based on the thinking and theories of Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud was an atheist. He believed that man was totally the product of genes and environment. Therefore, there was no accountability. If you're no more than the product of your genes and your environment, what control do you have over the situation? That's why Clarence Darrow, the great lawyer of the monkey trial in 1925, would, would walk by a jailhouse and make the observance concerning the criminals there. They had no more choice about being there than I've got of being here. They're a product of their genes and their environment with this belief that man is the product of just genes and environment and there's nothing there that has the ability to step out and to observe and to ascertain right from wrong developed a situation in psychology and it worked itself into our criminal system and into our sociology programs where we all of a sudden become unaccountable and so individuals go out and do wrong things they wait they steal they lie we say sure that's terrible look how they were brought up and so so often we keep suffering from those same people over and over again because society many times refuses to do anything because they say, well what do you expect look how they were brought up in the same vein Individuals do not come to grips with their sin because you see, for example, if you go to a psychiatrist who is operating in harmony with Sigmund Freud, he's going to set you down on that proverbial couch and you're going to go back in your life and you're going to tell him. And you know what you're looking for? He's going to ask you questions. You're going to talk and you're going to talk and you're going to talk. You know what he's looking for? He's trying to find the culprit. Why are you the way you are? And one thing you know in advance, the culprit is not you. The culprit's mama, or daddy, or an aunt, or an uncle, or a preacher, or a teacher. And we find that culprit. And then after we find the culprit, we realize that person, or that event, or that situation is the reason I'm this way. And so we place the blame there. That is not conducive to repentance. It's conducive to self-pity. So here we have a lot of people going to psychiatrists and they just wind up feeling sorry for themselves. Sorry they had the mother they did. Sorry they had the father they did. Sorry that something else happened. The Bible teaches that no matter what the environment, that man is made in the image of God. And that he reaches a certain level of understanding when he can step out from beyond his environment. And he can see based on observation and experience that this is right, and that is wrong, and he can make decisions there. You know, the interesting thing is that the proof of that is all around us. All of the time that society talks about individuals that can't do anything but strip cars or steal or whatever it is because of their environment, you and I can look into those environments and time and time again you find those select individuals who were raised in that environment and are just not that way at all. Somewhere in life they made the decision that I'm not going to make my living by stealing and stripping cars or by lying or cheating or by robbing or I'm not going to use drugs or I'm not going to use alcohol. I have known of individuals who had parents that were alcoholics And as a result, they hated this stuff because of the consequence they had seen in their own parents' lives. I have known of individuals that had families where the mother was not what they should be and the daddy was not what they should be, but they had looked out and seen families that were what they should be, and they had said, I don't want to be like my mother and daddy. I don't want this kind of home with all that bickering and fighting and squabbling and going on constantly. That I want this over there. And there are those individuals with a bad family that have made the decision, and they've said, this is what I want. So all around us, we have always witnessed those individuals that no matter what their environment, made a decision for something else, but yet we've allowed the excuse, based on the influence of atheistic thinking, that says simply that man is no more than the product of his environment and his genes, as opposed to the Christian concept that man has a spirit, a sense of ought, that is made in the image of God, and that no matter what his environment, he has the ability to perceive and to understand and to see that certain things work and certain things don't. Another thing that's interesting, I was reading, again, I'm trying to refrain from using any names to, in any of this, But it's interesting to me when I read about individuals with certain problems, whether it's uh, uh, the sexual thing or pornography or alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, and the impression is left that that individual simply cannot just repent or quit that, that it's going to take a period of therapy or a period of this, and and he's just addicted or she's just addicted to this. And so all of a sudden, instead of denouncing the sin, we become to feel sorry for this person that is so addicted to that and he has no choice in the matter. But the biblical picture is that no matter what the sin an individual is involved in, that he actually has the God-given ability to change. That he actually has the ability to look at the situation, to realize the insanity of it, and make a decision to change and go the other way. New Testament Christianity is based on the principle of repentance. The people that you read about in Corinth, as Paul wrote the letter to the church at Corinth, he writes and we read that you had, he says, you were effeminate, you were homosexuals, you were adulterers, you were fornicators. You were this, but now you're something else. The church at Corinth was made up of people that at one time, according to Paul, had been effeminate, homosexuals, fornicators, Adulterers, liars, drunks, idolaters, and they had made the decision to repent, to change, and to leave that and to go on to something better. And they were no longer adulterers and fornicators and etc., etc. They had that ability to change. There's no better example in the Bible than the Apostle Paul himself of a man who believed something one way and made a 180 degree about face and went in the other direction as a result of information. So, God then, what is sin? It's a word that means missed the mark. What is the mark? God's law. We've all missed it. God's desire is that upon recognizing the consequences that come from deviating from it, that people will want to repent and come back to it. And for those people that want to repent and come back to it, God offers in Jesus a sacrifice For their sins an atonement for it so that God is willing to forgive based on their willing to repent of the sin itself now we come to the question concerning sin in our individual relations sin among leaders and specifically maybe leaders of the church and how we handle that kind of thing in our relationship one to another and in the relationship with leaders I'm now in the New Testament in Luke, the 17th chapter, and beginning with verse uh, 1. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. The world of that person to whom they come. He said that things that cause people to sin are bound to come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of the least little ones to sin. So Watch yourselves. But notice what he says now concerning our relationship to one another: If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. He says, invariably, we will sin against one another. Invariably, it's going to happen. When it happens, go to the individual. In fact, I could have added Matthew 18 here, where he would say, "Go to him privately and tell him about the sin that he committed against you. If he repents." Forgive him. Forget about it. If he doesn't repent, take two or three more and establish the facts before witnesses. If he still refuses to repent, then he says, let him become to you as a Gentile. Keep in mind, when Jesus said that, he was among Jewish people that were not in fellowship with the Gentiles. In other words, the fellowship would be broken with that individual. Now, notice the thing about forgiveness. Forgiveness. Sometimes Christianity is portrayed in such a way that a Christian just simply forgives no matter what. But let's think about that. When does God forgive sin? When we repent, right? God loves everybody. God loves the person that has not repented and still sinned, and he loves everybody. Just like you will love your children no matter how bad they are, you still have a love for them. God loves us. But God will forgive based on repentance in the same vein don't let anybody and I wonder over the years how many Christians have been sent on a guilt trip because somebody told them that no you've got to forgive that person no matter what no you love that person and you want the best for him but you do not forgive a person who doesn't repent if I have stolen stolen something from you and I've got it and I refuse to give it back you don't forgive me you love me You want me to repent, but you don't forgive me. That is to my detriment. I need to have it impressed on my mind that I need to repent. And when you forgive people who have not repented, you take away part of the impetus that God would have on their mind to cause them to think their situation over and cause them to repent. And so, no matter how loving and how caring you are, and we all want to be to the best uh, best of our ability, God doesn't forgive unless I repent. And you and I in your relationship with one another, if somebody sins against you, rebuke the sin. If they repent, forgive the sin. What about a leader? Come over here to 1 Timothy, the fifth chapter. What about somebody that is in a leadership position, such as an elder within the church? In 1 Timothy, the fifth chapter, reading in verse 19, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Well, he tells you right away, don't you just go around believing wrongs about other people because somebody said it. But be open. And if that accusation is substantiated by plurality of witnesses, you've got to deal with that. So he says, don't entertain it unless it's on the basis of witnesses. But then if it's on the basis of witnesses, you've got to deal with it. Well, then what about this leader? Verse 20. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. Now, why does he say that? Rebuked publicly. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about leaders. There is a difference between a person who is in a leadership position and someone who is not. The person in a leadership position is before all the public. Now, if he's not in that leadership position, although he may sin, we can handle it in a little different way. But if that person is in a leadership position, for example, right here in the congregation, we might go out here and convert some individual that's on drugs, And over a period of several years, we may work with that person and maybe they go back and we work with them and they go back and we work with them and we don't have to come out and make any big deal over that. We can just work with that person and love them and and be comforting and, and try to help them to overcome that. It's not going to hurt this congregation in the eyes of the community out there. They know that person has problems and we're working with them. But I'm in a leadership position. And I have taken it upon myself to teach God's law and to say, follow me as I follow Christ. If I sin in the same way, I am much more of a negative reflection on Christ than that person is. And so I need to be dealt with, Paul says, in a public way. I've sinned publicly, and it needs to be dealt with in a public way. And notice the reason for it, as he continues on in 1 Timothy 3, and verses uh, 19 and and 20. It was so that the others, in turn, would fear and not commit the the same sin themselves. Now, come over here to, I should say 5, 19 to 20. I was looking at 1 Timothy 3. Now I want you to turn to 1 Timothy 3, though. And we're going to end with this passage. Here's the question we entertain. We know that we all sin, but we know that we can all be forgiven with repentance. But what about the situation when you have sin among those who are in a leadership type position, or those that are considering being in a leadership type position? Let's look at this in 1 Timothy, the third chapter. Here's a trustworthy saying. If any man sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, apt to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of the church of God? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment of the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace. Verse 8. Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. Then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way their wives are to be women, full of respect, worthy of respect, not mislicious talkers, etc. What is he saying? The person that takes it upon himself to be a leader is not on the same par with somebody that is not taken upon himself to be a leader. You can be a Christian in the church and not meet those qualifications of a leader, either of an elder or a deacon or passages that we could read about a minister. But when a person takes it upon himself to be a leader, if I'm going to lead somebody, I can't leave them unless I am heading in that direction and doing a pretty good job of following it myself, or you think whoever it is. You don't want someone as an elder to lead unless that person himself has a reputation that's good in the community and has an example worthy of being emulated. I read this, the um, first time it surprised me when I read it recently in the Chattanooga newspaper, well, he was dealing with one of the presidential candidates that had dropped out. He was also dealing with the former governor of Tennessee who went to jail and now says he's going to run for public office again. He says he's, paid his, duty, he's ready, paid his dues, he's ready to run again. And this is a person in the world dealing with the presidential candidate and with the former governor, and then he gets into the TV evangelist, and you know what he quoted? First Timothy, the third chapter, in pointing out that there is a difference between a leadership position... And his suggestion was that whether it's the presidential candidate or the former governor of Tennessee, that they needed to live a period of time where they won their reputation back, where people could have confidence in them, where people could look up to them and respect them and see that, hey, they are truly going in this way and they are a good example, then they're ready to turn to the leadership position itself. It's one thing to repent. It's another thing to have a period of time where you have proven yourself a certain type of individual that is qualified to be in a leadership position. And there definitely is a distinction that's there, so far as the Bible is concerned, both in the Old and the New Testament scriptures. Okay, let's end our lesson. Sin, a deviation from God's law. What is God's law? It's everything that's right. It's there for our good. We only benefit ourselves when we follow it. To come back to what is right. In other words, when I'm suffering a consequence for my sin, it is to my detriment for somebody to allow me to blame my sin on my mother or my daddy or somebody else. I need to recognize that I have freedom of choice and I can do what I want to do. With that recognition, I become responsible and I can repent and come back and when I repent, God is willing to forgive me. And there is no sin of the moral natures that we can commit or towards one another or whatever it may be but that if we're willing to repent God will forgive us we we'll also see there is an age where we become accountable before God that children are not accountable for the mistakes of their parents and they become accountable before God when they reach an age where through their own reasoning and understanding they perceive certain things as right or wrong and they become accountable to God based on their own conscience and God's law then we've also seen that there is a difference between being in a leadership position and someone not in a leadership. And God puts statements, very strong statements, dealing with the leader that is not there regarding the individual that is not in a leadership position. And God expects that anybody that takes that position to be able to live in such a way for a period of time that others may see certain things know that that person is on the right track and therefore be able to follow them in a leadership capacity. Listen to our lesson. If you're here this morning as one that is not a Christian, if you're still in the process of examining it, you still have certain doubts in your mind, uh, man, anybody that knows me knows that I don't believe in persuading anybody to do anything you are not ready to do. Uh, I sure did not become a Christian until I took a multitude of hours and studied it out and was confident in my heart of what I wanted to do. And so we offer the invitation every time we meet, recognizing that some are in the process of still studying, but then there sometimes there are those individuals who have already made up their mind. And if you're here as one that has already made up your mind, and you understand and know the sacrifice that God has given to you in Christ, and you desire to become a Christian, it's as simple as making the decision to repent of your sins, and put your trust in that sacrifice. God will forgive you of your sins. Water baptism is a physical act that depicts that great spiritual truth. The spiritual truth is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and your death to the love of sin through repentance and desire to walk in newness of life. And that truth is pictured according to the Apostle Paul when an individual is immersed in water and rises to walk in newness of life in a physical sense It pictures that spiritual truth, just like the Lord's Supper pictures the spiritual truth of the blood and body of our Lord. If you're not a Christian and desire to become one, we give you the opportunity.